Welcome to NAOP San Francisco Bay Area's podcast, where we engage, deliberate, and highlight the commercial real estate market and its leaders. Our goal is to reach our listeners in our community through dynamic engagements both in and around commercial real estate. We explore how the industry works firsthand from all facets. Our intention is to keep our listeners up to date with what's happening in the market, conversations with senior leaders, political issues impacting the industry, and more. If you like what you hear, please like, subscribe, and share our podcast with your personal and professional networks. Welcome to our listeners joining us today. We are very lucky to be joined by Sally Stocks, a portfolio manager with Calsters, one of the largest pension fund systems in the United States. And also, interestingly enough, a, another NAOP podcast uh, attendee who has recently made a major career shift over to Calsters. Uh, Sally, that might be a good segue to let you sort of chime in here and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Great. Thank you, David. Really happy to be here. So about halfway through the pandemic, I received a call from one of my clients. Um, I actually had I'd been at Invesco for the last 10 years as a separate account portfolio manager. So some of my clients over those 10 years were CalPERS and CalSTRS. And just for reference, CalPERS is the largest pension fund in the country. And then just across the, the, the river in Sacramento is CalSTRS. They're the second largest pension fund in the country. And CalSTRS represents all of the public school teachers in California. And they've been a fabulous client. And the head of real estate there, Mike DeRay, is kind of a legend. And uh, over the years, we got to know each other. I worked really closely with the team as we built up a $2.5 billion portfolio uh, on their behalf. And he called me probably six, seven years ago and asked about joining the team. And I think my first reaction was, I could never move to Sacramento. It's way too hot. <laughs> and and uh, which is very timely today where it's 115 degrees in Sacramento. It just wasn't quite the right time in my in my career to consider a move like that. Well, fast forward, he called me during the pandemic and said, I can take Sacramento off the table. We're going to be a lot more flexible. We really want to recruit talent. And we're paying a lot better. And it's really an exciting place to work. And, and he said, it's really fun to have the checkbook, which is ultimately what the pension funds hold. They've got the money. It's very cool. It's interesting to hear, too, that you know the work from home move has actually made it easier in a case like this for you to make a switch to, um, I don't know if you'll call it the client side, from Invesco. Um, so tell me a little bit about that. Invesco, obviously, large manager as well, uh, managing, I don't know, billions of dollars in their various funds and separate accounts. So how does it feel to be the quote unquote client, to be the investor? Well, I'll start by saying it's really fun to be the client. I mean, my whole <laughs> career, I've been in very much a service provider position. Uh, when the client says jump, you say how high. And it is different to wear this hat where uh, I can be, you know, a little bit more flexible about taking things the direction I, I might want to go as to, as to sort of being at the beck and the call of a, of a client. It's, uh, it's very different to put on the public sector hat after working in the private sector my whole career. And, and I, you know, keep hearing people talk about sort of how the sausage gets made. And it's true. I've seen things from a, from a completely different perspective. And hopefully gives you more faith in our government and public sector and not less. It actually gives me a lot of faith. I've been really struck by the caliber of people working at Calsters. I mean, fu fundamentally, we all want to work with nice, smart, 
ethical people and they have that in spades and you know just uh, good people trying to do the right thing to make sure that the the pension fund is growing and solvent for the the teachers that that we're supporting no it's great to hear especially as a taxpayer so appreciate that <laughs> well i have a, I, I i am really connected to the mission driven nature of the of the organization I've always been a big advocate of public school systems. I served eight years as a school board member on our local school board. And uh, my son is actually a vice principal at Berkeley High, so he's a direct beneficiary of, of the system. Uh, he recently married another teacher, and uh, I've got a new boyfriend who's a teacher. So I'm fully invested at this point. Wow, that's very cool. And you're investing in their retirement accounts, which is great. That, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so if we get a little bit more into the nitty-gritty Tell me a little bit about what you were doing exactly in your previous role at Invesco and then what, you know, a portfolio manager does, like what the day-to-day looks like at CalSTRS. Sure. So so one of the ways to think about what a company like Invesco does, which another name for what Invesco does is to be an advisor, is to acquire a portfolio of assets for the institutional investor. And there's really two primary ways that, that we go about doing that at a company like Invesco, you either uh, uh, create a series of funds and investors, you know, invest in those funds and they have no discretion. Uh, the other way is that they they put together a, a separate account. So it's literally, we, we in the case of CalSTRS, whom I was working for at the time as my client, uh, we worked sort of hand in glove to craft a portfolio with, for them. We would um, figure out what to buy, what to sell, how to how to finance, uh, and and as the portfolio manager, I was really the face of the account. So I was the one who got to deliver the good news, and I was the one who had to deliver the bad news. And you now I like to think about the uh, portfolio manager role as sort of a it's kind of a three parts. I think in terms of what skill set you tap into, I think about a third of it is basic real estate blocking and tackling, and 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 you know knowing how to analyze real real estate and think about analytics. Um, another part, another part is marketing, because we're fundamentally trying to deploy capital on their behalf. We're trying to to buy assets for them. So it's trying to get the clients, in this case, Calster is excited about the opportunity. And then the third part's really probably a little bit psychologist, trying to work with the staff of these large institutions to understand what their motivations are, what their pressure points are. And as as I worked with a number of different institutional clients, CalPERS, CalSTRS, State of Nevada, City and County of San Francisco, Stanford, you know, on and on, with different levels of an appetite for risk, you really have to figure out what's going to motivate the teams. Gotcha. And so just to make sure I understood that, you're saying at Invesco, this was a commingled fund that you're managing? I worked, no, I, wor- I worked on the separate account side. Gotcha. So we have at Invesco, a number of commingled funds, some value adds, some core plus, some core. But the other side of the house is really separate accounts where we create discrete sort of bespoke, bespoke opportunities for those clients where they're the sole investor and they can be structured either as a discretionary account where Invesco gets to decide what to invest on their behalf or non-discretionary where we would go to the client every time we had a good opportunity, describe that to them and then get their approval to proceed. And for a group like CalSTRS or CalPERS and the money that is being put into real estate funds and separate accounts, 
Is there a general benchmark for how much is separate accounts versus commingled funds? So at Casters, we like to say we're control freaks. And <laughs> when you put when you put your money in a commingled fund or or closed in fund, you don't really have any control. Uh, it can be difficult to redeem. You know, we open we think of open end funds sort of like an ATM machine. You put your money in and you get it out when you want. But often the times when you want to redeem out is when there are periods of distress and there's not liquidity. Whereas on the on the separate account side, it's typically 100% Calsters money. They might do, you know, often they'll do a 95-5 joint venture with a developer. But Calsters has the, the vast majority of the equity in the deal and they have all the control rights. Gotcha. So I, we, our real estate portfolio, which just order of magnitude, is about $45 billion in equity. So when we layer in debt, it's about $70 billion gross asset value. And that represents about currently about 16% of the total Kelsters fund. Hmm. So of that real estate, about 75% of it is what we would call control, where we, we get to make the buy and sell decisions. And so on the other side, being in the co-mingled funds, is the advantage there was increased liquidity if it's an open-end fund? It's Yes. Increased liquidity is one thing to think about. It's, it's diversification more broadly, as opposed to sort of single asset risk. Gotcha. And I don't know if you would know this, but to help put that in perspective, how does $70 billion compare to something like CalPERS? So total fund size, we're about $310 billion. And CalPERS is a, I think they're very close to $400 billion. And for both of the, basically all of our, our peer groups, we've had what's called the denominator effect, where as the equity markets fall, the percentage of real estate holdings goes up. So for, for Calsters and our peers right now, we're finding ourselves in a position where relative to our asset allocation target, we're over-allocated. So that would mean every, every several years we do an asset allocation plan where collectively we determine how much are we going to put in equities, how much we're going to put in fixed income, how much we're going to put in infrastructure, and so on, and then try to use that as our guidepost. So Sally, speaking of your friends on the other side of the river in Sacramento, I'm not sure how that works in the pension fund world. Is that like a competitive relationship where you know, there's comparison of notes and returns on an annual basis and who's doing better, who's doing worse? Or is it purely collaborative, friendly? Hey, we're giving money over here to Invesco, so therefore you should give money to so-and-so over there. Uh, How's I it think work? It's, it's much more the former. It's, it's at a minimum a very friendly rivalry. At a maximum, maybe a little bit more cutthroat than that. I've actually had the experience of being a separate account portfolio manager for both CalPERS and CalSTRS at the same time. So there were many days where I'd spend my morning in one group and then, you know, walk down the street basically and go to the other group. And they're, ve- they're very, very different cultures. CalPERS is... is a well-oiled machine at deploying capital, uh, really, you know, savvy at moving dollars through the system. And I would say that Calsters is, you know, historically has had more of a reputation of being kind of cowboys. You know, people that like to roll up their sleeves and really dig into the deals. They tend to travel a lot more and um, and just uh, just dig in more. Um, in terms of competition over returns, absolutely. In fact, our return, we, you know, we both had very challenging years this past fiscal year uh, with negative returns. But I believe Calster's overall negative turn, negative return was about uh, minus six and ours was closer to minus one. 
Um, while we <laughs> while we enjoy friendly rivalry, it's sort of interesting to note that CalSTRS employees actually have a pension through CalPERS. So we certainly want them to do well because that's our you know that's our future pension. <laughs> That's good to hear. Well, I'd say negative one, you guys are certainly outperforming the indexes, if not most uh, folks, high net worth wealth managers as well. We did. Our, our entire system uh, outperformed this past, past quarter. So all the different a- asset classes uh, bet their, beat their benchmark by, by designated amount. So walk me through a little bit in terms of the day-to-day and what's going on with all that turmoil. What does that then mean for what your job and your role looks like right now at CalSTRS. A lot of your time spent, you know, looking at existing portfolio and massaging allocations. There's a lot of time spent looking for new investment managers because you guys are unhappy with certain existing investment managers. Tell me a little bit more about that. Sure, sure. So, you know, one of the things that we need to think about just sort of at the outset is the role that real estate plays in the portfolio broadly. Uh, real estate is an income generator. And that's one of the reasons why we like multifamily so much is because the rents get rolled to market so frequently and we can keep up with inflation or try hard to keep up with inflation. So the system broadly is looking at us to throw off a lot of cash. Calsters, if I if I have my facts right, and I'm still so new to the system that, that, that I can't be 100% reliable here, but I believe we pay out to our 100,000 uh, retirees a little over a billion dollars a month. So it, the numbers in terms of what we need to be generating is, is pretty staggering. Within the real estate group right now, as I mentioned, we are over our target. Our target's 15%, and we're currently sitting about 16%. So the word of the day is that every new opportunity we look at needs to be compelling. We also, you know, we're driven by beating the benchmark. That's the only way that we can, you know, maintain the solvency of the system and we've got to think about what that means. So one, one example would be we're underweight to industrial, uh, so we want to boost our industrial exposure so we can benefit from some of those stellar returns. But it's very expensive to buy real estate, or to buy industrial. Does that, you know, does that make sense right now in that trade-off? So we're, we're constantly evaluating one opportunity against another. Um, in terms of sort of how we go about it, we, we really don't spend as much time evaluating individual deals. We will when they're very large. But really our focus is evaluating strategies and evaluating teams. Are we picking the best people in the marketplace? Do they have the best ideas? Do they have the best bench strength? What's, the, what's their differentiating factor to help us meet our objectives? And how is that done? Is that an annual review of existing partners or is it a partner's underperforming and then it's, okay, let's have a review of this group and think it through? How's that work? So we have we have a stable of, of existing partners that we've worked with for a long time. So I will say at the outset, it's challenging to break in. We have an emerging manager program where we bring in uh, new new partners without a long track record so that we can help get them established. Often that's an area where we're really focused on increased diversity. Um, but typically we work with very established partners and we're always evaluating, you know, how, how they're doing. Although we really look at sort of three-year horizons. We, we don't think about one-year returns in that sense. And we also think about, you know, there are areas that we have not had a lot of exposure to. So the alternative sectors, data centers, senior housing, storage, uh, because in the past, we primarily focused on the four food groups. 
And we know that we're, you know, we want to get more exposure to those areas. So we're spending a lot of time just taking meetings from people, hearing best ideas, trying to figure out who's got, you know, the advantage. It's interesting. Is CalSTRS in the life science space at this point? We are very big in life science. We have made really big outsized bets. Uh, uh, one of our, one of my peers, Don Palmieri, is uh, it, it has an early adopter, early, you know, sort of first mover advantage. Uh, I think he's brave. He sort of goes, you know, goes where no one will go, and we've been really rewarded by that. In the last cycle, he was very willing to do spec office development when others weren't. And that led to a lot of our, our past outperformance. That's great. Glad to hear you guys are ahead of the curve on that front or on the bandwagon we all are at this point. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we're, you know, I think when we first took a deep dive into life science, we were very careful to really focus on very much the, the primary markets uh, as we've gained more confidence in our ability to, to pick and choose the right partners and the right, the, you know, the, the investments with the right attributes, we've been willing to stray more into, you know, some more secondary markets, but we continue to think that it's still just very early in the life science life cycle and that there's a lot more room to run. Any other particular trends or sectors you're watching right now? I sort of have a passion for, for looking at the demographics and trying to figure out where they're, where they're going to take us. And, you know, we look at the amount of wealth that's concentrated in the hands of the baby boomers and try to think about, okay, so there's travel and leisure, there's senior housing, there's life science. There's also going to be a lot of aging baby boomers that don't have a lot of, you know, don't have a stockpile of cash. And so manufactured housing can be, you know, another, mm. another area. Studying the trends is interesting. So would you say that's one of the most attractive parts of having switched over to being on the client side is that you get to think sort of at the higher strategic level and less at the day-to-day -day deal level? I, I think that is true. I mean, I've noticed with every job that I've sort of moved through, I've gotten farther away from from the actual real estate. I mean, my very first job in real estate, I managed an apartment building and was clearly, you know, up to my elbows in, in details. And uh, I, I have moved farther away from that. I do, I'm a bit of a deal junkie, so I sort of miss miss some of that. But I think trying to trying to stay at the forty thousand foot level is is really interesting. And one of the reasons why I wanted to go to Calsters was I just wanted to put myself in a position where I could meet new people every day, learn new things every day, and just keep it keep it fresh. And I and I and I have that in, you know a lot of that. No, that's great. And I know we spoke briefly, obviously, early on in the call here, or sorry, in the recording, about the transition from Invesco to CalSTRS. It might be helpful for some of our listeners. You know, we have a lot of folks who listen who are younger and earlier on in their careers. If you just gave us sort of a brief recap of where you started property management of an apartment building, sort of where that took you, you know, over the past previous years now to being a portfolio manager at CalSTRS. Well, I will confess that I've not been as, let's say, focused on moving from one step to another throughout my career. I've had really good fortune and I've sort of let some things happen to me, but I've been in the right place at the right time. And some of that is because I, I have worked hard on relationships, but I sort of fell into, into real estate. I was an art history major and uh, really didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. Uh, I spent my junior year in Florence studying art history and I had a roommate from San Francisco just so happened that her dad was the largest private apartment landlord at the time. And I moved to San Francisco out of college and he offered me a job. 
So <laughs> one thing led to another. I think I, you know, I quickly learned that managing an apartment building in the tenderloin was not for me. There were a lot, <laughs> a little few too many challenges, um, and it's you know it's it's tough being you know in the middle of domestic violence and, and you know just dealing with people's homes. And I so I quickly you know ascertained that I wanted to get on the commercial side. I worked for a company called Catellus, which was the real estate arm of Santa Fe Railway. So it was all the land that is Mission Bay today was owned by Catellus. Uh, and at the time that I worked there in the early 90s, it was just one corrugated metal box after another with a lot of truckers, a lot of environmental problems. I had both traditional you know, shopping centers and office buildings and industrial parks, but I also had a lot of ground leases. So like all the land that's under Golden Gate Fields, uh, that, that Golden Gate Fields was my, ten my tenant with a ground lease, um, random places like Alpine Meadows, uh, which I made a point of visiting every year. Uh, was was also my tenant. I had um, pheasant hunting clubs and sheep farmers, and so I learned a lot about a lot of different things. And they would basically Catellus had so much land, excess land from the railroad that they would they would sell those that excess land to then fund their developments like Mission Bay or Union Station in LA. That's interesting. And you also had a stint at EOP and Reef following that. Is that right? Actually, I I, uh, I, I took a little time off uh, after my second child and then had an opportunity to work for Speaker Properties in Marin. And it was when Speaker was absolutely on a tear acquiring everything. Uh, so I was able to work local, which was fabulous. Worked at Speaker for about five years. Then EOP bought speaker was there for about five years. So I was sort of the leasing queen of the North Bay and the East Bay. It was very much a volume business. And then I stayed there um, after Blackstone acquired it. And then I got a call from a friend of mine who I'd worked with at, at speaker, Frank Garcia, who's been running the Prudential Score Fund. And he said, come to Reef. You, got, you could really get in the institutional, you know, see how it's really done. So I went there and worked on their core fund. So I had about four years learning the core fund side of the business. And then I caught a call from Invesco saying, come learn the separate account side. Wow. That's a very cool track record and history there. Um, that would also explain why there was such great artwork in all the speaker projects and <laughs> back in the early That's 2000s. Right. I remember right. that. <laughs> so my career, I mean, my advice when I'm talking to young people um, is really about understanding good real estate and understanding why an owner would want to be in a particular building. I, I see so many young people who believe that real estate is, is, you know, mostly about running Argus models. I never got my MBA. I, again, I was an art history major, but I have really good basic real estate instincts. I know how to run real estate and I'm strong at relationship building. And so I've really learned into, leaned into those aspects. Um, and I do a lot of client relations work. Yeah, I, I think with each step, I learned how to talk about transactions with more credibility to get investors comfortable. Particularly during, you know, GFC, when I was at Reef, we just sort of traveled the country reassuring our clients that that everything was going to be okay or we were thinking about the right things. That was a time where we were going through bankruptcies and loan restructuring and you know tenant workouts. We weren't buying and selling or financing. We were just trying to trying to hang on. So so understanding what what's on the mind of investors and how to get them excited or calm them down 
was really, you know, how I spent a lot of my time. So I'm in a Beacon Capital building who I believe you invest with. Any other notable local ownerships we may or may not recognize have Calsters as a client? We do a lot with with Beacon and and quite a bit with CBRE, and we typically will do a 95-5 joint venture. So right now we're building Berkeley Commons in Berkeley with Lane Partners. That's a local one that you might know about. It really varies. We try to find sort of the best in class, uh, you know, developer, operator. And the way we structure the agreements is Calsters is is typically 95 or 90. The operating partner is 5 or 10% of the equity. They have a promoted interest. And then we have somebody like a beacon who plays an advisor who provides oversight to the partnership. So you obviously have to rely heavily on your partners and advisors. How big is Calsters from a headcount perspective? We have a lean staff. I mean, like I, I mentioned, we oversee about $70 billion in real estate and we're a team of 28. So, and a big, a big portion of that team is really um, sort of back office operations, moving money, capital calls, more accounting, accounting functions. So there's, there's, there's very few actual, you know, portfolio managers and investors. So more money to manage, you get to be the client, smaller team to work with. Sounds like a great platform for what you were passionate about. Calsters is a natural, natural fit for me, I think, in part about what I've already mentioned about public, you know, public schools. And I'm, um, I'm also a board member um, for the nonprofit organization CASA, which is, which is a national organization helping foster kids. And I'm part of the San Francisco chapter. I, I actually was recruited by Corey English, who, who served as a former president of CASA. So she exposed me to the, to the organization. It's uh, serving on the board is is you know is fascinating. We're there in part as a fundraising board, part governance board, and really trying to make sure that the organization is on solid financial footing so that they can help provide uh, as as much support to the roughly thousand foster kids that are in the San Francisco system. I also serve on the Marin Women's Commission. So the, the Marin County Board of Supervisors, uh, there's five supervisors and each of them uh, appoints two women. And so there's 10 of us that serve on this commission and our charter is extremely broad. It's been around for about 75 years and it's simply uh, improved the lives of the women of Marin. So we focus a lot right now, our issues is really around food insecurity coming through the, through the mm-hmm. pandemic, but we've We've done things with, you know, sort of battered women's shelter and rape kits and helping. Uh, we, we run a big teen girls conference to help uh, get girls um, thinking more about scholarships. We're really trying to help the underserved in Marin. Wow, that's very cool. It sounds like Calsters is well ahead in ESG and social awareness, as are you personally passionate about it. Is that passion part of what drew you to take the role? The ability to work, you know, on a large scale on issues like climate change and, and diversity in the workplace was a, was a huge hook for me in terms of thinking about leaving the, pri- the, the frankly the lucrative private sector and 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 taking a pay cut and working uh, for a government entity. I mean, I, you know, there's certain things that are that are just different. You know, at, at, at Invesco, I always had, you know, people to do my expense reports and book my travel for me. And, and this is, this is lean government as a taxpayer. I'm always pretty impressed at how, how lean the organization is. You know, we really want to reflect the values of the California teachers. Cowsters has been, you know, 
absolutely trendsetting in terms of divesting from cigarettes, divesting from uh, you know, mm. gun manufacturing, things like that. The, the fossil fuel debate is is very contentious, and we we are making sure that we have an active seat at the table in the in the um, companies that we invest in. Um, we think it's often better to invest in companies that need to improve than to divest because then you don't have a voice. When I was thinking about my pros and cons of of going to Calsters, I was really excited about being able to, you know, work in an, in an environment that truly is capable of making major change in diversity and ESG, and they can simply apply pressure and and influence change. Having said that, our number one objective is to is to make the best risk adjusted returns. So we're we're you know first and foremost always making sure that we're making prudent investment decisions. But there's no reason for us to think that we can't do both, you know, make the world a better place and make money. That's the goal. Love if we can. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> and does that apply outside of real estate? So as Calsters, CalPERS, other large pension systems, do they have the power to go to equity investments like a, absolutely, you know, some in big fact, tech company and say, we don't want you to manufacture in China. We want you to manufacture here. Yes. That it, we have, I, I don't know how many team members, but we have a large number of people who who, who work in our government affairs, government affairs office, for example, that are purely focused on on uh, making sure that the companies that we invest in are are being good corporate citizens, um, and looking at issues of you know fair labor practices and climate change and diversity and that's uh, I mean when you have the kind of uh, you know, amassed wealth that CalPERS and CalSTRS have, it also comes with it a lot of uh, responsibility. Of course. And it, to the extent you can share, is there anything that's sort of next up on the radar of the cutting edge sort of ESG, you know, thought process and things that some of the larger pension systems are doing? So CalSTRS is getting a lot of press right now. We are, we are, we are out there. Um, last year, we made a, a pledge to be carbon neutral by 2050. And so we went within the real estate group, we've spent the past year just getting just getting baseline measurements of what the carbon footprint is for all of our vast holdings. And, and it's it's taken a huge amount of work for all of our partners to comply compile all that information. As part of that, we asked all of them to submit to Gresby, which is an organization that is um, sort of a, rep- a data repository. And it's a scoring it's a scoring device. So uh, there's there's healthy competition. But in in addition to all the environmental factors, it's also gathering social and, and government's aspects. So we are getting data on on diversity, diversity, it's, you know, senior leadership ranks. And we, we really think the first step towards change is to is to you know to gather the the baseline so you can measure incremental progress. That's very cool. So taking it from the macro level to the micro level. And again, some of our listeners are, you know, younger, early on in their career. Any words of advice you would give to folks who want to keep a lens on some of these, you know, social environmental goods, one at the same time further in their career? I think keeping an eye on what Calsters is doing. I mentioned a minute ago that we last year we pledged uh, carbon neutral by 2050. Well, just at our most recent board meeting, we actually increased the ante and said we want to cut 50 percent of our emissions 
by 2030, which, you know, is just right around the corner. Um, and that is, that's across all of our asset classes. So to the extent that we, data is available, you know, across equities, fixed income, you know, our, all those various investment companies that we invest in, we are uh, trying to move in that direction. I also think you're going to be seeing CalSTRS do quite a lot in the affordable housing space. Uh, you know, we just look at downtown San Francisco, for example, the office market and some of the some of the struggles we're having now. And, you know, there's there's going to be, I think, tremendous opportunities to figure out how we can do better and improve on some of the inequity that we have just right here in our backyard. And going beyond that ESG lens, other advice you'd like to share for the young professionals listening? I candidly worked in real estate for years, only thinking about sort of my boss and, uh, you know, who, who I, I answered to. Uh, in terms of maybe answering to a specific client, but did not pay a lot of attention to who really controls the decision making in the process and who owns the vast majority of you know of our of our of our major assets. I mean, would you think about the sovereign wealth funds, the domestic pension funds, uh, life insurance companies, and what their various you know objectives are and and risk tolerance. It's helpful to just, you know, understand uh, where those decisions are being made. Uh, you know, at, at, a, at a place like CalSTRS, we've got, you know, uh, a huge portfolio, and yet there's only 20 of, 28 of us uh, overseeing this. So uh, we really have to leverage our, our partners uh, and their expertise, and they are our eyes and ears on the ground. And so we really look to, you know, local sharpshooters, local experts, so um, on the one hand, you know, I would strongly encourage young people to really hone their craft. And I think on the one hand, it's really important to understand you know, how to calculate an IRR, how to understand discount rates and, and valuation metrics, but also know what, what does the consumer want? What's going to be a building that has, you know, the attributes of irreplaceable real estate and uh, getting your hands dirty a little bit. Sally, how is it generally being, part of my language, but a badass woman in commercial real estate? Tell me a little bit about that. I haven't gone back to the 90s and the era and, you know, very, um, you know, predominantly historically male-dominated industry. I know it's got to be something that's played into your decisions and challenges in your career. So do you mind touching on that? Well, let me just start by saying I love that moniker, badass woman in real estate. I will, I will, I will take that. You know, it's interesting. I am just about 57. So I've been through multiple cycles. And there were plenty of years where I felt like I was really at a disadvantage being the only woman in the room. But at some point, and I can't really pinpoint exactly when it was, it turned to being a very distinct advantage. I think that that really came through when I went to Reef. We had so many clients where decision makers are people of color and women. And uh, I think the advisors started to see the light of day that, you know, uh, it, it was just not productive, not, you know, in a very pragmatic way to, to lack so much diversity. When I moved to Invesco, um, it was a time when CalPERS, CalSTRS, UC Regents, they were all running UFP, uh, RFP processes. And they, Invesco, Dallas-based company, very, I think, astutely realized and, and I will say nobody ever told me this explicitly, but I think they realized that going into a, present, a finals presentation with six to eight white guys from Dallas was not, not the best way to distinguish themselves. So I probably got a seat at the table 
maybe I hadn't even earned yet, but I, you know, brought some value to the team. So I, uh, I think it's, it's, it's nice to see that there are some positive outcomes. And I guess I just uh, really applaud the work that the public sectors are doing to embrace diversity. And I think it's going to be very hard, as we all know, in the, in the private markets to see the pace of change that we want to see. But we're certainly seeing it uh, dramatically in the public sector. Uh, and it's exciting. I'm thrilled to be part of it. And I would, you know, for young people thinking about it, I would encourage them to investigate. They, uh, they really are paying well and, and trying to attract talent. Well, I have no doubt that every position there and along the way has certainly been earned, if not 10 times over. Why do you think it is that so many of the clients, investors, pension systems are diverse, but we end up in the situation where the real estate companies are not as diverse as we'd like to see them being? So, you know, some of it is where the the pension funds are headquartered. You know, they're often headquartered at state capitals. So it's just been very difficult over the years for, for CalPERS and CalSTRS in Sacramento to attract top tier talent, particularly when they have, you know, one hand tied behind their back with, you know, less than market compensation. But, but uh, offset against that is if you stay in the system long enough, you'll receive a pension and, you know, potentially have some healthcare benefits, which could be invaluable. I just think that there's, they, they historically have lacked snob appeal. But I'm here to say the quality of the people that, that I'm meeting it, across the board at our peer groups. So State Board of Florida, Texas Teachers, you know, New York Commons, very smart people, very motivated people, nice people, and very mission-driven people. And they're happy to give a warm welcome to some traditional white gentlemen from Texas to give them the opportunity to help add to the diversity as well, I'm sure. That's right. Everybody's welcome. Again, the end of the day is... We want to we want to uh, deploy capital, and we want to deploy capital with the people who are the most, uh, you know, uh, have the best strategy, have the best track record, are the most forward thinking. And and I'm I'm not representing Calsters when I say this, and I just want that disclaimer across this whole podcast. Is these are these are my opinions that I'm sharing. But when I'm evaluating an opportunity, and I see that the the team all looks the same. I worry about their their forward ability to outperform. I worry that they don't their priorities right, right might not be in the right place to help them attract and retain talent, and it gives me pause. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, I think that now there's a decent amount of data make its way around showing that there's a real business decision to be made in diversifying, both right. in terms of thought process and group, investment strategies. Group think and avoid, yeah. It's risky when everybody thinks about problem solving the exact same way. Well, Sally, I really appreciate you taking the time today to sit down with me. As you said, for a badass woman managing one of the largest pension systems in the United States to sit down and talk to little old me in San Francisco, NAOP, I really appreciate you taking the time. So thank you. Dave, we can't do what we do without, you know, without operators and, and uh, partners l- like your firm. And uh, we're, we're thrilled to have, you know, the talent and boots on the ground that, that help us with our objectives. So we're, we're happy to be part of it. And uh, thanks for letting me share some thoughts. I appreciate it. Hey, listeners. Thank you for joining our conversation and being part of NAOP San Francisco Bay Area Chapters podcast community. 
Our goal is to reach our listeners through dynamic engagements, both in and around all things commercial real estate. So if you like what you hear, please like, subscribe, and share our podcast with your personal and professional networks. We love feedback and would appreciate a review on whichever platform you prefer. And if you're interested in becoming a NAOP member, you can find out more at naopsfba.org. That's N-A-I-O-P-S-F-B-A.org. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, take care, and we hope you join us again.